Welcome to Techno, where Sophos experts debate, explore, explain, and hopefully help you to understand the often baffling world of computer security. Techno is presented by me, Paul Ducklin. And me, Chester Wisniewski. And today's topic is two-factor authentication, or as we shall probably refer to it to keep it short throughout the podcast, 2FA. Chester, let's follow the format we have with other technos. We'll look at what, what it is, how it works, and why it's a good idea. And at the end, we'll also look at whether it really is the panacea or the silver bullet that some people seem to think. So let's kick off. Talk us through what two-factor authentication is all about. The standard definition is it uh, includes two of the following three items in order to verify your identity online when you're trying to log into a, a website or perhaps your bank or something like this. And the three items that they talk about are something you know, something you have, or something you are. And that kind of refers to sort of biometric type things like your fingerprint or a retinal scan and this type of thing. And so you need to present at least two of those things in order to verify your identity, which is obviously a lot stronger than simply uh, using a password or a passphrase like many people do for logging into most websites today. Okay, so I get the idea of something you have and something you know, for example, for a cash point or an ATM, where you have the card that you have to put in the machine and you know this PIN. When you're logging in with your laptop and a password, what's the thing that you have? Is that the laptop? No, but there's many different forms of the something you have can take. Uh, if you're a corporate user, you may have been issued one of these uh, FOB tokens that you connect to your keychain, perhaps, that has numbers that appear on it that rotate uh, every minute, or some other sort of physical thing like a smart card, perhaps, that you insert into your laptop. What most consumers are probably familiar with is perhaps this more new trend of using SMS or text messages as uh, something you have. So you have your cell phone and you have your laptop, and you go to log in with your laptop, and you type your password, and then the remote website sends you a text and says, please enter what you just received via text message to verify that you, know, you physically have that telephone as well to show that it's you. So the deal about the two factors is that they operate largely independently. So if your laptop gets compromised, say, with malware, then the theory is that your mobile phone won't be compromised at the same time. And that raises the bar for the crooks, does it not? Yeah, absolutely. It's much more difficult to compromise someone when they're using a system like this because either one of the two things can be stolen, lost, compromised, and then, but if they don't have both of them, it doesn't work. And, uh, you know, it's not to say it's impossible, of course, but the, the general uh, practice of key logging, for example, to steal your passwords is extremely common and extremely easy for criminals to do and get away with. Uh, and this really slows them down. So in fact, if you have a keylogger on your computer because you got infected with malware, then it actually doesn't matter if you have a 24-character password with three digits and seven punctuation characters. That doesn't matter to the crooks if they're able to watch everything you, you type. Absolutely. It also kind of works for the idea of, say, a, a password database being stolen, like we've heard about so much over the last couple of years. And, you know, if that site uses two-factor authentication, even though the criminals may now know that your password was set to princess, it doesn't do them much good if they haven't stolen your mobile phone or perhaps taken the token off of your keychain. Now, another aspect of SMS or token FOB 
verification or authentication is that generally speaking each time you come to type in the, the code from the sms or type in the stuff off your token it's different that makes it a one-time password doesn't it so what's the difference between a one-time password and two-factor authentication do they always go together well, they're very similar, but they're not quite identical. Uh, certainly the number that appears on the token or comes in via SMS is a one-time password. But typically, uh, two-factor systems usually include the one-time password plus something else that you combine with it. So what you're saying is that two-factor authentication, like the ATM card example I gave, it doesn't have to have a one-time or an ever-changing password. But these days, generally 2FA does also have some kind of a one-time password, and that raises the bar even higher for the crooks, doesn't it? Absolutely. I guess you could consider the, you know, a basic two-factor to be, like you say, an ATM with a, a PIN, uh, whereas a, a more robust two-factor solution uses a rotating, ever-changing uh, PIN, if you will, so that it's even more secure. So we've got two things, and one of them happens these days generally also to be a one-time password. That makes things a lot more secure. But one thing I've noticed is that we're not just hearing about two-factor authentication these days. Apple and Automatic, that's WordPress.com, and Microsoft, but they're using all sorts of different terms. So we're also hearing two-step verification, two-step authentication, and of course two-factor authentication. Are those just synonyms for the same thing, or are there subtle and important differences that we need to bear in mind? There are subtle differences, and a lot of this comes back to our mobile devices. Uh, you know, if you have an iPad, for example, and if you're using your iPad as the token, so you're receiving, say, the SMS on your 3G-enabled iPad or iPhone or Android device, and then you proceed to log into Outlook.com using the very same device and enter your password, you've sort of weakened the two-factor approach a little bit, because if the device itself is compromised, it's now being used for both factors. Okay, Chester, we've talked a lot about the what, and we've made sure that we've clarified the difference between the various two whatever-it-is authentications, whether it's a step, whether it's authentication, whether it's verification. Let's move on to the how. How does this work? For example, when you go and buy one of those tokens that has the six digits on it that change every 30 seconds, 60 seconds, or whatever, how does the other end of the equation, the server, know what sequence of numbers are going to pop up on your token? Most hardware tokens that you may be familiar with, things like uh, RSA Secure ID, um, these types of things are what we would consider to be time-based tokens. And so there's a cryptographic seed that uh, is kind of used as a salt combined with the time that generates uh, a unique hash. And in this case, the hash happens to be a six-digit number. So that's how the server is able to compute uh, what should be on your token, and then it knows what the time is, and it knows what the magic salt is, and it can use those things to create a hash that will be equivalent to the things that appear on the token screen. So it can still all go horribly wrong if the server gets compromised, is that correct? In other words, if some crook were able to get in and retrieve those cryptographic seeds, they could basically have a software version of your token running at their leisure. Is that true? Yes, unfortunately. I mean, that's exactly what happened with RSA a couple years ago. And, um, you know, there are free tools out there, like uh, there's a tool called Cane Enable. And if you know the serial number of an RSA token, and you can also provide the seed, 
you can actually see what will be on the screen of that token at any given time, assuming that your time is accurate enough on your computer. The security of those seeds is absolutely essential, and it was a bit surprising to find that uh, the company was actually keeping them, because you would think that the seeds should only be in the possession of the organization wishing to, uh, to perform the authentication itself. So the why we talked about is it makes things harder for the crooks. It means they can't just steal your password and then drain your account for the next three weeks like the bad old days. Why would anyone say no to 2FA? Well, one of the objections I hear um, often from service providers is the what do you do about recovering if somebody loses the thing? Or maybe you left your mobile phone at home and you desperately need to access your Gmail account or something like this. and Well, maybe you left your laptop at home, Chester. Then what are you going to do? <laughs> well, you go to the public library, of course, and you type in Princess on the terminal that has a keylogger installed. Yes, I, I was at a KiwiCon conference a couple of years ago where uh, there was a presentation about internet kiosk security. It was absolutely shocking. Best defense against internet cafes is not be there. But the, the, you know, the question uh, does arise of what happens when your keys are physically stolen or destroyed, or maybe you forgot and left them in your pocket and went for a swim. Do you permanently lose access to your Gmail account? Or do you, you know, so th these are concerns that companies that um, want to offer two-factor have to think about is how do you recover um, without being social engineered? Yes, because Apple went down the route of tough love, didn't they? They actually said, uh, in reaction to that chap, Matt Honan, who got socially engineered and the crook was able to wipe all his iDevices uh, by simply persuading Apple's support staff that he couldn't remember the answer to any of the secret questions, so would they mind resetting the account anyway? So Apple have said, there is no more social engineering, there is no more liaising with support. You've got a recovery key which you can write down on a piece of paper and lock away at home, and if you lose the recovery key, then you will need to get a new account. So there is a bit of tough love there, isn't there? They're saying, look, if you take this responsibility, you will be much more secure. But if you're forgetful or if you don't follow the guidelines that we recommend, then yes, you can lock your keys in the car and you will not be able to break the window to get them back. Yeah, and that's part and parcel with doing this correctly because if we're trying to help solve problems like the social engineering question, that's one of the ways you can solve the problem is say, you know, our people don't have the capability to do it. Uh, that tough love approach may turn off some users, but I think uh, the fanboyism of Apple users will uh, keep them all on board. And certainly everyone I know who has begun using 2FA, for example, for online banking, once they're kind of bitten by the idea of how much this improves their online safety, it's pretty hard to go back. I've been using 2FA with my online banking for some time now, and I can tell you that I will not do business in the future with any bank that does not offer two-factor authentication to my satisfaction. It's just, I just consider it out of the question. That's a great reason not to ever move to Canada, Paul, because uh, not a single bank in Canada offers two-factor authentication. Is that because consumer protection is quite strong in North America? And, you know, if something does go wrong, say, with your credit card or your debit card, you'll probably get your money back and the merchant will get stuck with the debt. Do you think that's what's made people think, well, why would I change this? 
Certainly, that's a, a consideration, and and I know uh, you know I've thought about that myself. Although uh, we have adopted chip and pin here in Canada, and I have the exact same fraud protection uh, and zero liability with my Visa and my Mastercard as I had before we had chip and pin. So, Chester, we've we've talked about the what, the how, and the why, and it's clear that you and I are really on side with this, and we like the idea, and we want to use 2FA because we think it brings great benefits to us and to the person providing us the service. Not everyone may agree. We hope they'll come round in time. But it's not a panacea, is it? It still can go wrong if the crooks are smart enough. More often than not, you know, I would think the the weakest two-factor forms are back when you're going to what you called two-step earlier, you know, where you may have uh, some malware on your mobile device that is a, has the ability to intercept your SMS messages, um, and that malware may also be able to intercept you entering in your, your passphrase, and so that would give the criminals the ability to authenticate as you pretty much any time they want, because uh, even if you're not already authenticating, they can trigger an SMS to be sent silently, intercept that SMS, and then use your key-logged password to log in from wherever they're at. Yes, and although we have seen malware that does exactly what you say, it is comparatively uncommon, isn't it? Yeah, and and, and I do um, see and like the uh, ways of detecting that fraud. Um, companies like Facebook place cookies and at least send you an email going, hey, somebody just logged into your account from a computer running Linux in Alexandria, Virginia. And I'm like, oh, no, I've been hacked by Brian Krebs, right? Like, at least I have a chance to know that something went wrong if it does go wrong as well. So all these things really add up to a great amount of improved security. Were you really hacked by Brian Krebs? <laughs> no, of course not. I mean, that would be huge. That would be great. There are probably people who'd love to be hacked by him just so they could say they had been. If I was going to be hacked, I would want it to be Brian Krebs. So 2FA can help us a lot. It can raise the bar, if not indefinitely, at least a lot for the crooks. It does give us and service providers some extra protection. So in your opinion, we should endorse it, but we should also try to use it in the way it was designed. Absolutely. And and I think the, the growth of these apps and SMS kind of things is great because one of the fears early on in 2FA was that we'd all be walking around with 35 tokens on our keychain. and. This also helps solve that problem. So, uh, yeah, using it right is very important, but using it at all is still a help. So I, I encourage everyone to adopt it where they can. And it does look as though open standards have kind of taken over in the Authenticator app world, doesn't it? Microsoft's new Authenticator app that is available on the Windows Phone Store is industry standard. So it looks as though if you want to do SMS verification, or software authenticator application-based verification for your second factor that you won't need to carry 12 mobile phones and 14 different tokens. Absolutely, and, and Google's also uh, proposed one. They're working with uh, Ubico on another open standard that theoretically could be built into browsers to help with password management that would accept a, a standardized token that you could buy from any of you know a dozen vendors that want to sell tokens. Sure, and I think my take on that, Chester, is even if I had to carry six fob-sized tokens around with me, compared to the size of my laptop, it's not that onerous, considering the extra safety and security it gives me. We have to remember not everyone is security conscious as us, so the easier we can make it on folks, the better. And, and my litmus test is when my mom and dad can adopt something and use it, then that to me means that we've reached the appropriate level of simplicity. 
if two-factor can be simple enough that way, then I think it's past the litmus test, and I think we're finally there. Chester, that sounds like a perfect spot on which to end. So let me just say thank you very much for joining me and answering all my questions. Uh, let me just remind all our listeners that there's a whole back catalogue of Sophos podcasts available at podcasts.sophos.com. You can also get all of our podcasts from iTunes, and we have an RSS feed which will alert you when something new has arrived. So thanks for listening, and until next time, stay secure. Thank you.